This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Arizona, home of Len Nesifer. My name's Len Nesifer. I'm a professor of American Indian Studies. Len is an academic, an adventurer, and the founder of a company called Natives Outdoors. Natives Outdoors is an apparel company, um, and we also specialize in consulting and storytelling as well. The idea of Natives Outdoors is to build up an outdoor recreation industry for tribes in Arizona. It's a project that combines both his passions, Native history and playing outside. One of the things that we see is that um, a lot of tribes are on or near very scenic places and there's a really big opportunity to build an outdoor industry on tribal lands with Native people. Len should know. He grew up on the north rim of Canyon de Chez, a Navajo-run national monument. But now he lives in Tucson. Mountain biking is awesome around the area, trail running. Um, of course, hiking, you can always do most of the times of the year. Um, but one that I've been exploring the most has been climbing. When we talked to him, he was getting ready to go up the Cochise Stronghold, a spectacular climbing area about an hour from Tucson, where the Apache leader Cochise took refuge. The Apaches considered this place home. And it's kind of neat to think about, what if, like, how, do, how would I consider this place home? How would I take care of this place? All over the state, Len says, there are opportunities for tribes to build on their history and connection with the land and figure out ways to share that with people. There's, you know, just thousands of years of culture and history and designs and like a lot of cool uh, influence that can be brought to the industry. And so we're just basically using our company as a conduit for that through our products, through the types of stories that we tell and the other work that we do. In addition to building up an outdoor industry, Natives Outdoors also sells gear featuring traditional designs and artwork. And the company gives back 2% of their sales to native-run nonprofits that work on outdoor recreation, language revitalization, and environmental issues. Because Len says these things are all connected. A lot of language and cultures are based um, on the land and the landscapes they come from. And it's important if we're looking at conservation that those two go hand in hand. Find out more about places and causes that your trip can support at visitarizona.com. That's visitarizona.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. Under normal circumstances, to introduce an episode... I'll talk about why the story we're giving you today is important. Maybe talk about something personal that has some tangential connection to what you're about to hear. Except today, that personal story for me comes about halfway through the episode. What you're about to hear comes from our friends at Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. And a while back, the host, Sam Evans-Brown, told me he was working on a story about mountain biking and that it might be a good fit for Outside. And the story was a good fit, and we got to talking about it, except there were text messages, and I told him a story about my dog. And finally he was like, hey, can we record this? So we did, and you'll hear it later. And Sam does a great job introducing his own show. So instead of coming up with something else, I'm just going to hand it over to him. Here's Sam. In a surprise twist, we're going to start this episode walking through the woods. This is something called the Smarts Brook Trail System in the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire. So, federal property. And we're walking on some trails that are not exactly legal. Trail going up this way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty defined. I mean, these are not not the stealthiest of 
stealth trails. I don't know. <laughs> and this one that we're on is, like, how many miles of trails are there here? There's about 17 miles on the ground right now. Our tour guide to these not entirely above board trails is Jody Chinchin. District trails manager on the Pemigewasset Ranger District. Jody has been a forest ranger, a trail builder, and a wildlands firefighter. She manages 600 miles of mostly hiking and snowmobiling trails. But these days, she's been spending a lot of time with mountain bikers. And mountain bikers are obviously a biggie. Um, they, uh, they do a lot of work. <laughs> they have a lot of energy, so. Jody is, as far as I can tell, a model federal employee. Polite, accurate, and circumspect. She calls these trails incidental trails, user-created trails, non-network trails. Bureaucratic euphemisms for what they really are. Trails that got built on federal land without permission. She estimates there are about 35 or 40 miles of them just in her district of the National Forest. So, so strictly speaking, it's not okay to just go dig a trail. But, but people have done it, and, and that's a fairly common challenge that you all deal with. Yeah, pretty common. <laughs> we, um, can we redo that part about um, whether it's authorized to build trail? Also along for the walk, Evan Burks, a public affairs officer. And when you say redo it, what, what about the well, you, you asked a question about, like, yeah. is, it, is it essentially legal to go out there and put trails on the forest? Right. Um, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Jody's being very careful to not offend mountain bikers, and Evan is trying to help her. For years, mountain bikers have been kind of like the woodsy version of skateboarders in a city, using a landscape not built for them, carving their own paths into the hills. And that rogue culture, the very fact that it was illegal and secret, was part of the allure. But now, the Forest Service is trying to fold these pirate mountain bike trails into the official trail system. And the best people to help them do this are also the very people who built the -the off-the-map trails in the first place. We're trying to harness the good energy of all these great people that want to do the right thing and they want to have great mountain biking trails. At the same time, we have to do it correctly and we have to follow the, the process. This is like how, for years, city officials used to put up signs that said no skateboarding and would hassle the kids that scraped up the new granite steps in front of the courthouse. But eventually, they gave up and built the kids a skate park. But as Jody is showing me a trail that's been designated for a redesign so that it takes a more circuitous, erosion-friendly route down a hill and avoids an apple orchard that the wildlife likes, we notice that the flagging for the new trail has been pulled down off the trees. Someone is trying to sabotage Jody's work. So there are some adversaries to this project um, that, you know, the... the uh, There's people who want this trail to remain um, low use and to remain intact, and they want to maintain the character of the network, um, just as it is. Um, Are these these people who you know by name? Like, like you've seen them at the public meetings, and you're pretty sure you're pretty sure identify the opponents on site? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm sure this wasn't part of the plan for our walkabout tour, and I'm sure that Jody and Evan will be annoyed that this is what I've chosen to focus on, but what I was glimpsing was a game of cat and mouse, of federal forest officials wagging their fingers and prodding bike clubs to follow the law with vague ultimatums, and mountain bikers doing what they've basically done for decades, 
ignoring them. What we were witnessing was the silent battle for the soul of a sport. It takes a little bit of practice and, you know, scars. You know, these were our woods, and, you know, we went out and played in them. Collarbones would break. And, you know, everybody looked around like, holy cow, look at all these trails. It's not that cool anymore to build trails on national forests without consent. It keeps me up at night, to be honest. I, I do know it's coming to a head. There's a large contingent of folks that made those trails, those older trails, and they could give a rat's ass if anybody else ever come rides them. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I am Sam Evans-Brown. Pirate trails are everywhere. The pioneers of mountain biking built them on private land and public land and everything in between. They were built by riders just looking for a place to take their new bikes. And in the process, they simply appropriated land that they wanted for their trails. But today, there's money to be made on mountain bike trails. And so the sport is being pushed to go legit. But what happens when the evolution of a sport threatens the very thing that made it so attractive in the first place? The first thing that I need to cop to here is that I mountain bike. I got a bike about two years ago, and I will confess that I think it's an absolute blast. I can't remember the last time that I was so excited about learning a new sport. Ultimately, I am glad for trails to take my bike on, and I'm struggling with the knowledge of how many of these trails were built. And because my bent for understanding things is to look at their history, let me introduce you to two mountain bikers who have been around since the beginning of the sport. First is Dave Harkless, a bike shop owner in Littleton, New Hampshire. I'm one of the guys in this town that makes this town fun to live in. Dave is a connected figure in New England mountain biking. He's kind of an ambassador for the sport, maybe a little scruffy, but he tucks his T-shirt in. As I've matured, shall we say, uh, I try to stick to uh, legit trails. The second is Gardner Kellogg, a surveyor in the same town. I'm 71 years old and have been doing this mountain biking for probably longer than I should have. He bought one of the very first mass-produced mountain bikes back in the early 80s and has built a lot of trails in his day. And I think at the time, he saw this as a victimless crime. Earlier on, there just weren't that many people riding and it didn't really matter that much. So why did mountain bikers feel like they needed their own trails? Well, back in the beginning, they didn't have any. Uh, back in the you know, mid-80s and early 90s, most of the trails were made by something, somebody else for something else. They were logging roads. They were footpaths, uh, sometimes you know, well-trod animal tracks. And we just rode whatever we could. And the roads were extensive enough that you could ride for a few hours and get tired and go home. It was just fun to ride a bike in the woods. Was it, was it challenging? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dave and Gardner didn't quite admit this, but early mountain bikes sucked. They had no shocks. They had small tires compared to today's, so you felt every bump, and your arms would go numb after a lot of riding. They had lousy brakes and funky geometry, so they didn't stop very well, and it was really easy to fly over the handlebars. To ride a bike like that, you had to be pretty hardcore. Like, the, even the racing back then, you know, you would, like, race up an unmowed run on a ski hill uh, and then come bombing down some work access road trying not to eat it the whole way. Holy shit. Wait, 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 wait. 
I mean, I had to walk a few times. I mean, it, it's okay to walk. When did things start to change? When did, when did trails for mountain bikes start to get built? Real trails? Legit trails? Legit trails wouldn't appear for another decade or more. But my sense is that it didn't take long for pirate trails to pop up. Mountain bikers were definitely considered, you know, renegades. Just like the early skateboarders who drained pools in the uninhabited second homes in their California neighborhoods, the early mountain bikers found a place to take their new rigs. We'd just go into the woods and start clearing away to get from one point to another by hook or by crook. If you've ever been out walking and turned onto a trail that suddenly is just zigzagging, maze-like through the woods, winding crazily through the trees and doubling back on itself, that's a mountain bike trail. They are super frustrating to walk on because they take forever to get anywhere. Mountain bikers don't want views or destinations. They want corners and obstacles and downhills and to ride their bikes until they're tired and wind up back where they started. And they want it close to home, which means often these trails were built in whatever woods were nearest by, no matter whose they were. A lot of landowners up here are absentee landowners. A lot of land is old land and old families been handed down through generations. They don't necessarily live on their land. And then you also have... uh, you know, state forests and national forests, too. In this area, there are a lot of large tracks that um, aren't really supervised, and, and so it really isn't a, an issue, and people really don't mind. Again, the victimless crime narrative. But some of these landowners didn't exactly see it as victimless. Have you ever had the experience of a private landowner who didn't know there was a trail on their land finding you to talk to you about it? And, and what are those conversations like? There have been conversations, and some are, um, uh, some are nicer than other conversations. The early trails were called rake and ride trails. Uh, so you could literally build a trail with a rake and a pair of loppers and a handsaw. As the sport got more popular in the 90s, there was suddenly a constituency for these trails. But it was very clubby. You learned about the trails through word of mouth, through group rides at bike shops. To get on the trails, you had to know a guy. And the trick was to get the group rides to ride on those trails so they'd get worn in. And because these trails were built by these same hardcore mountain bike dudes who'd been willing to ride up unmowed ski slopes and bomb down access roads... The trails were not for beginners. And they were tight, they were twisty, they were extremely technical. You could have 24 inches between the trees. There's still some trails like that around here, and we call them skinnies. Riding these lines is intense. You fall over, you crash, you hurt yourself. And it can be extremely frustrating. Uh, if somebody's looking to get into riding, and this is their first experience, they're going to have to be a very determined person to be successful. Send them up there and like, go ride our trails, they're really fun, they're really awesome. They come back bloody and pissed. Generally speaking, this was the state of affairs for mountain biking back in the early 2000s. Pirate mountain bike trails snaked their way through many, many little patches of undeveloped land that abut the towns where riders live. And the people who rode them were the ones who were willing to risk riding on unmarked trails that are extremely difficult and might not be legal to use. Which is to say, mostly white guys. 
Good numbers are hard to find, but I've seen numbers that suggest 75% of American riders are dudes. A lot of these trails were built by experts who were looking for things that were fun and challenging for them, but are kind of horrendously difficult for new riders. And because they were built without permission, the people who built them wanted them to stay under the radar so that they wouldn't get kicked off. Just a path, a whisper wider than a deer run, specifically designed to be winding and treacherous. And no trail signs. Trail signs invite outsiders. Trail signs bring attention. No trail signs. So maybe you're asking, so what? Who cares if there are pirate trails? Well, let me tell you a story. The story as I have it is that um, the rabbi and his wife came to um, take a walk up the hill. She didn't want to go. She stayed at the car. This is Mark Taylor. He sounds like he's setting up a joke, but he's not. He worked for 20 years as a police officer in a town called Franconia. Mark told me about a search and rescue that happened in 2001 when a rabbi from Brooklyn named Abraham Auer came up to the White Mountains. This is like a pretty well-defined trail. I mean, this is wide. It's a fairly well-defined trail here, and so it basically forms a sloop about a mile and a half all the way around. Abraham's wife, Milka, waited for him, but then it started to get dark. About 9 o'clock, his wife calls the police. My chief shows up, um, talks to her, calls Fish and Game out. They make a pass up through. They make a quick walk up through. They didn't find him. So they decided they would start the search the next morning. Rained all day. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a hard rain, but it was cold and it was damp. So it, it, it was really a tough day to be outside in the weather if you had to be out in the weather. By noon the next day, it was clear that Abraham Hour was really, really lost. Fishing game did come back and they made a pass through and they searched this whole area. They had, I want to say there was probably three or four fishing game officers and a couple volunteers. Didn't find anything. And that evening, apparently, um, the New York governor called New Hampshire governor, who in turn called our Colonel of State Police and the major from Fishing Game and said, um, we need to do something about this. Apparently, Abraham was kind of a big deal. Um, at some point in time, um, the uh, Hasidic Jewish community came up from New York with their urban search and rescue people. Um, they had a mobile command post, which was basically out of an old Greyhound bus. All of your radio communications, all of your telephone communications, um, and, and their own ambulance. How, so how many, folks, how many folks came up from New York? I would say by the end of the third day, there was probably three or 400 people here. That's bananas. Yeah. We had enough people, so that's about a mile and a half, two miles down the hill, and at least another mile and a half back up to the interstate. And we could put one person every 300 feet so that they could face into the woods and call the guy's name. It was a little eerie because you could physically stand here and you could be in the woods just a few feet and you would hear, Abraham, Abraham, where are you? Prior or since, have you ever seen anything like that? No, no, not at all. second day they retraced their steps and then the second day they found an article of his clothing where they had been the previous day. It was a vest. Um, so he was basically walking in circles at that point. By the third day the governor's resources had arrived. 
there were dozens of searchers from Fish and Game, local and state police, and the National Guard. They had a Black Hawk helicopter out here searching the area. And again, for a Black Hawk to search, it's more or less hovering. Um, and they're looking straight down in the woods. And we got a message that basically they, had, they saw something in the woods they weren't sure what they were looking at. And the, uh, the Fish and Game team went out to where the helicopter was because, you, again, you can look through the woods and see it. Um, and that's when they found him. And he had, some, had passed away at some point in time, probably um, within the past 24 hours, just from the exposure. Where we found him um, is only now a few hundred yards, probably, from where the nearest backyard is. How does somebody get lost on a trail like this? A one-mile loop, super wide, well-defined trail, the most touristy of tourist hikes. Maybe you've already guessed the answer. It's right ahead of you here. A little bit of a trail. Oh, uh, yeah. Not much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you can definitely see it. But the mountain bikes use this. So I'm following something. He got lost because he turned onto an unmarked mountain bike trail. Near the top of the hiking loop, at the intersection where Abraham Auer needed to take a left to get back to his car and to his wife, there was another trail to the right, a mountain bike trail over private land. It's a trail that a few years earlier had fallen out of use because the bikers had been kicked off after a rider swore at the landowner who was out walking his dog. They rerouted the trail to the north so that it came out on a local cross-country ski loop. But that required crossing a brook. And before long, there was a big rainstorm, and the ramshackle biker's bridge that they'd built got washed away, and the trail fell out of use. That was a very rotten log. Just sank right into it like stepping in a deep snow. I tried to walk the path that the riders must have followed. But after a few hundred yards, I lost the trail. And soon, just like Abraham Hour, I wasn't sure if I was headed the right way. I kept bushwhacking, wanting to see how far Abraham would have had to have walked in one direction to get himself out of trouble. But after 20 minutes of tromping my way along with no trail, with the sun starting to dip out of sight behind the bowl of mountains that ringed the area. Yeah, and it's funny, I've just started to get those twinges of like, I'm far enough off the trail here that I'm not 100% confident of my ability to make it back. Doesn't take long. This particular wrong turn was a really strange one to make. When you're making a circle of all lefts, why would you go right? But Abraham Auer wasn't the only one to make this mistake. We had, obviously, the, the rabbi has taken, the, taken this trailhead improperly. Um, we've had um, several different tourists, tourists that have taken us. We actually had a school group, and the teacher got off course and took the whole group. Um, and I actually found them. Over on 141, I actually got to a point where I could look down in the ravine and I could hear them talking. It's like, come up to here. <laughs> At least in this one spot, it seems pretty clear that a trail sign would have been nice. 
And it's not just inexperienced hikers that get lost on pirate trails. When you see maps of them, they look like a plate of spaghetti. I routinely get lost on my local bike trails. And so do very accomplished adventurers, like Peter Frick Wright. I'd gotten up early, and I was, like, still in my pajamas, just writing, and my dog was just, like, looking at me the whole time, just having none of it. Friend of the podcast, host of the Outside Podcast with Outside Magazine, a couple of years ago, Peter took a few days to get some writing done at a family cabin in central Oregon, abutting some federal land. Like, we came all the way out to, like, my favorite place, we're in the woods, and you're just staring at this glowing rectangle. So Peter put down his computer, gave in to his dog. It was drizzling, so he threw on some rain gear over his pajamas and started walking the logging roads that crisscrossed the forest. After a little while, he saw a brand new mountain bike trail. No signs, though. And I was just like, well, this, this looks great. Like, let's go explore. He followed the trail, came out on another logging road, thought he knew where he was, and started walking. Uh, just walking and walking. And after probably three miles, I was like, I wonder, I wonder if I'm turned around here. But I've gone four miles, so I can't just, like, turn around and walk another four miles backwards. And uh, kind of the long story short of it is uh, I ended up walking 12 miles in the wrong direction. Um, in your pajamas. In my pajamas and out of my wallet. Like all I had was a leash and a dog. <laughs> a very excited dog. He was so stoked. He was just like, this is the best. Like, I'm going to bother you every time you're working now. <laughs> Here's my question. Um, like, what would you have needed in order to have not had this happen to you? Oh, it could have been, like, any of a lot of different things. Um, like, a, a, a single, like, trail sign saying, like, this way back to the way you came. Or if, if there had been a marking of some kind, I had no bearings at all. All of these pirate trail networks might have remained more or less hidden, unmarked, largely unnoticed, basically forever. But things have been changing. The bikes have been getting better. Those rattly death traps with no shocks and bad brakes have been replaced by cushy, full-suspension party bikes that squish their way over obstacles without as much punishment on your body. That's what got me into the sport. And the new riders who were drawn in were suddenly able to find trails because of Another change, this one quite sudden. Around 2010, people started to upload their rides to GPS smartphone apps, which made the ride data public. In particular, there's one app called Strava. Strava has even gone so far as to create a global heat map, which looks kind of like one of those pictures of Earth at night from space, except the lights, instead of being city lights, are all the places that people ride bikes, including all the places where there aren't supposed to be trails. Suddenly, Everybody knows about all of those underground trail networks. It's like that high school party that gets too big, and so it gets busted by the cops. As I understand it, what happened is um, some of the local folks in the White Mountain National Forest offices were retiring. So these young people were coming up through, and some of them were avid mountain bikers. And they also were technologically savvy. Again, Dave Harkless, the bike shop owner in New Hampshire. Uh, so, you know, they brought up the heat map and, you know, everybody looked around like, holy cow, look at all these trails. 
While reporting this story, I heard tales of a federal government that couldn't decide whether it wanted to encourage mountain biking or ban it. In the 90s, they made and distributed a map of illegal mountain bike trails on federal property, essentially advertising them. But I also heard about a couple of years where they were sending out forest rangers to camp out at trailheads, waiting for the riders to come back to their cars so they could hand out tickets. So the federal response has drifted with whoever's in charge. But now, for the first time, you could see all of the pirate trails at once. And I think it became clear that this problem wasn't going to go away. And also, around this same time, the commercial side of the sport has really started to explode. These are a couple of the many, many, many GoPro videos that are available on YouTube of people riding in a place called Kingdom Trails in Burke, Vermont. Kingdom Trails is 100-plus miles of amazing trails up in the northeast kingdom of Vermont. And this is Abby Long, executive director of the Kingdom Trails Association, a nonprofit that manages this trail network. Our mission is to provide recreation education opportunities by managing, maintaining, building trails for the health of our community and regional economy. That sounds like it was verbatim from something. <laughs> what? I, I'm a, that's from the heart. <laughs> What's happened in the intervening decades from when a bunch of dirtbag mountain bikers first started hacking illegal trails out of the woods that their neighbors owned through to today is that mountain biking has become big business. A study of the tourism to Kingdom Trails has estimated that they bring $10 million a year to this very rural area. And Burke, Vermont, is just one of dozens of towns that have parlayed their mountain bike trails into million-dollar tourist industries. Moab, Utah, Sedona, Arizona, Pisgah, North Carolina, Bend, Oregon. But public trail networks have to be legit. They first um, went door-to-door, knocking and talking people, um, you know, face-to-face. And those few landowners, those generous landowners, we, it's now we're at 92 landowners, which is incredible. If, in the 80s, mountain bikers were the equivalent of skateboarders riding in their neighbor's pool that they had pumped out when no one was home, in 2018, towns like Burke, Vermont, are the towns that built the skate park. And not just any skate park, the best damn skate park in the Northeast. It offers everything. So someone who's hardcore can go get that technical riding. Someone who wants to just learn can go on some really fun greens. And then kiddos can learn to mountain bike with their striders on our little baby pump tracks. But even inside a success story like Kingdom Trails, there are tensions. There's a lot of folks who don't want things to change. They want things to be exactly how they were, um, how they grew up and what they love. The popularity of the trails means they're crowded on weekends, which annoys local riders. And it's brought traffic to the village, which annoys local drivers. It keeps me up at night, to be honest. I, I do know it's coming to a head. Kingdom Trails saved the Burke area. I mean, Burke was a very depressed area. Um, But I also have a bunch of friends that live up there. They don't ride on the weekends. You do get a pushback, like, we don't want to be another Kingdom Trails. We don't want it so busy here that, you know, that we can't go enjoy our trails ourselves. And and I don't want that either. Uh, You know, I personally take joy in seeing somebody you know, like a guy and a family and his wife and kids out on our local trails having fun and smiling. I'll stop and shoot the breeze with them. And there's a large contingent of folks that have made those trails, those older trails, 
and they could give a rat's ass if anybody else ever come rides them. They do not care. They just want their trails. When a sport is brand new and there's nowhere to do it, the few people who take it up tend to be the ones willing to bear the risk of using spaces where they're not allowed. This can make for skeletons in the closet, since the culture that forms as a result is one that is, in part, defined by being outsiders. Then, once the market sees an opportunity and starts to bring in the masses when they build the proverbial skate park, the old guard, the original riders, sometimes don't like what they see. But time and technology marches on. And that's what's happening back at Smarts Brook, where we started this episode, and where Jody Chinchin is overseeing the proposed redesign of those pirate trails. And I think all of these things have promoted a different type of an experience, you know. It's just kind of matured over the years, maybe. Um, people are happier now with, you know, something that they can go home from with, you know, a little bit less blood at the end of the day, hopefully. <laughs> Not no blood, but just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. If you remember, on our walk, we tried to follow their proposed trail redesign. This was where someone had torn down the flagging that showed where the trail would go. After a brief bushwhack, we popped back out of the woods. Oh, we're back on the trail. So, um, so this is interesting. It's a trail that you didn't know about? Mm-mm. And I don't remember this from two years ago, so, yeah, but... Um, Happens fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, I'm psyched to explore a brand new pirate trail with you if you want to do that. <laughs> Let's just take it back to the orchard. Okay. You can build them a skate park, but at least for a little while, until the culture changes, some of those kids are still going to prefer to scrape up the courthouse steps. Whoa! Whoa! Let's not Whoa, do that again. Where'd the GoPro go? You see it? Stay still. Stay still. All right. Stay still. You've had a bit of a fall, but I'm here looking after you, alright? Okay. You're going a bit too slowly over the jump. You keep your head right. Being unconscious for quite a while, so we need to space it. That's Sam Evans Brown, host of Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. This episode was produced by Sam and Taylor Quimby, with help from Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Nick Capodice, Ben Henry, Hannah McCarthy, Jason Moon, and Lauren Shulgin. It was brought to you by Arizona, where it's currently warm enough to go mountain biking, even on pirate trails. 70 degrees in Phoenix today. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.